Heavenly Father, uh, we've all come here today not just to sing songs, not just to meet and hang out and spend time with each other, not just to hear someone talk. We've come here today to encounter the living God in the company of his people. And uh, my prayer, Father God, my earnest prayer for today is that you would, in your grace and mercy, through your Holy Spirit, unite all of our hearts in the hearing of your word, my heart included, that you'd move aside any error, any, any confusion, any distractions, and that you would get our, our, the eyes of our hearts focused in on who you are, your glory, your worth, your infinite greatness, and help us find the great joy that our hearts were made to find in you. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So we're in week three. If you've been with us the last two weeks, you, you know this. We're in week three of this uh, series that we've been calling Church, Children of the Living God. And um, in this series, we've been really asking just one question, one very simple question, and that is, what is church? What does it mean to be a part of the church, this, this group, this body of people? And more important than, than, than us trying to answer that on our own or figuring out what the best answer would be, logistically or administratively, what does God say about this? What is God's answer? When we ask him the question, what is church to you, God, what does he respond with? What does the Bible say that this group of people who share a, a common faith in Christ Jesus and his work on the cross, what are they? And in week one, if you were here with us, you know we, we answered that question with the word family, that they are family. As children of God, we all belong to the family of God, and we saw this in the book of Acts. There's this, this family that is radically devoted that comes into being in the first few chapters. They're devoted to God, and they're devoted to each other in a way that is simply breathtaking. And then last week, we explored the fact that the church is the bride of Christ, and we saw from Ephesians 5 how through the submission and um, sacrifice, these two paradigms, that um, there's a dramatization in the act of marriage that portrays Christ, the husband, and his bride, the church. Um, and one of the things we saw about marriage last week, which we're going to be leaning into and, and sort of dovetailing off of for this week, is that in that marriage, in the marriage between um, husband and wife, Christ and the church, there is this reality from Genesis 2 that Christ becomes one with the church. He is the head and she is the bride of Christ, the body. And so we see this picture even as early as the second chapter of our Bible of Jesus Christ and his bride, the church, and they are one flesh. The union between Christ and his bride is so intimate, so close, that she is his own body. That's how he views her. And this means that the church is the body of Christ, which is a phrase that I know you guys are all familiar with. We use it every time we talk about the church, really. And so today we're going to ask this question, what does that mean? What does it mean for the church to be the body of Christ? A single, unified body. What's the, what's the goal in God creating a scenario in Scripture where that is the way that we describe the church, the body? Why is he doing that? And so 
If you have your Bible, and I I hope that you do, please grab those and turn them to the book of Ephesians chapter 4. As I was planning out this series, I realized (laughs) we're going to be in Ephesians a lot. I should have just probably just taught through that book, um, because almost every week we're we're in this book. Um, Ephesians 4 verse 1. And so Paul is going to engage this concept of the body of Christ. He's going to do it slowly and gradually, but you'll see where he's headed. Verse 1, Paul says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you, he's talking to the church at Ephesus, to Risen Hope, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. So here we see Paul is urging, that's the language he uses here, urging the church, all of us, the body of Christ, to walk in a manner worthy or or fitting of the calling to which we've been called. And he explains what that call is in in verse 4. He says, the calling here is is the hope to which we've been called. A, A hope that we all share that grafts us into the very body of Christ. And now he's going to tell us how this this church, these people who've been called by this hope into this body should act. He says they should walk with all humility and gentleness, that we should walk with patience, that we should bear with one another in love. This is what the body looks like. And so Paul's first major focus, the, the first thing he wants to zero in on when engaging the body is that they should love each other. That is top of the list for Paul, that they would fight to love each other. And this is done through humility. This is done through patience, long-suffering. This is done through love. And he continues to tell them in this passage that he wants them to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So what he's saying here is he wants them to be United. He, he doesn't just want them to be united. He wants them to be eager to be united. He wants them to long to be united with one another and to fight for that unity, um, which has an obvious implication for him to want us to be eager implies that we may not be eager by default. We may not come to this reality without needing to fight for it to happen in our midst, in our church. It's not going to come easy. To have unity, and even in the body of Christ, to have unity, you're going to have to work for it. It will not be a given. Humility, and you know this in your own lives, if you're like me, you know that humility is not a given. It's a fight to be humble. It's a fight to be gentle. It's a fight to have patience and to strive for peace with other people, especially ones that you disagree with. These things do not come easy for us, And I think Christians focus a lot on the unity of doctrine, which is huge. And if you've come to this church for a while, you know we take that very seriously. That's a big deal. But Paul's concern here right at the start is, do you really love each other? Like, do you love each other? Are you willing to lay your lives down and sacrifice your time, your energy, your very life for one another? 
Because if someone has received Christ by faith, the same Christ that is described in this book, the Bible, if someone's received him like that, they're part of the body, the body that you're part of, the body that we're all a part of. And Paul tells us that is where unity begins. Not in a list of things, it begins there. Have they received Christ Jesus as their Lord and Savior? And he clarifies this in verse four through six. He says, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. In other words, unity here isn't an option because in God's eyes, there is only one. There's only one body. There's only one spirit. There's only one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. There's only one God. So why would there be divisions? Why would there be um, enmity in the body? And what this means is that when we engage brothers and sisters in Christ, with any differences we have, any differences at all, it must always be done from a place of deep love and affection. Deep love and affection. And he underscores this by saying that God, who is the, the father of all of us, God in this church, I don't know what's going on there. Is that rain? Is there a spaceship taking off? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, hopefully he's not distracting. He underscores this by saying the father of all who is in this church, or, or he underscores this by saying that, that this God is father of all, and he is in all and through all, and he is driving all of us to one purpose, which is, which is Paul's way, I think, of, of, of saying that to treat a brother and sister in Christ in a, in a way that is poor, or in a way that is wrong or, or, or filled with uh, just a lack of affection and love, to do that is to treat God poorly because he's their father. And, and not, not just because they are image bearers, which we should treat all people with dignity and respect because they bear the image of God, but in this case, they belong to God. They are his possession. Um, and... They are in the body of Christ, so he is over them in authority. This God is over them in authority. He's working through them in his gifting to them, and he is in them by the power of the Holy Spirit. All of those aspects are true about anyone who is a brother and sister in Christ Jesus. So to treat a brother and sister arrogantly or, or impatiently or in any way that isn't really like loving, no matter if they agree with you or not, on any given issue outside of what shares us in common faith is to treat God in this way because they belong to him. That's a big deal. So the first thing we need to understand when we think about the church as the body of Christ is that love in pursuit of unity is not an option. It's not a nice to have. It is critical. Without unity in the body, there is no body. Um, Paul is saying it doesn't matter how many items you, you check off on a theological list. If you don't love them at the end of the day, then all of that is surface level. You can agree with anybody about facts, but do you love them? Are you willing to give your life for them? Love is foundational to the body. Because when you first received Christ... 
He didn't wait for your theology to get in order, in order to love you. He loved you where you were. His love came first, and so should ours. But then Paul pivots, and he continues with verse 7 in this passage in Ephesians. He says, But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. And so moving from the necessity of pursuing unity in love, in the body, Paul says that grace has been given to every single human being that's in the church. Every single one of us individually has been given grace according to the measure of Christ's gift. In other words, God, through Christ Jesus, has granted every single person who belongs in the body of Christ, the church, with unique gifts that only you possess in the way that you possess them. Unique gifts that are God's grace for the body. We all, every person in this room, all of us are recipients of God's gifts through Jesus Christ. And those gracious gifts, whatever form that they take in our lives, have a divine purpose. They have a divine appointment and a divine purpose in the body. And this is engaged all over the New Testament. You almost can't go anywhere without this being implicit or explicitly engaged. For example, 1 Corinthians 12 says, Now there are a variety of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are a variety of, varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all and everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. And so Paul here says that there's a variety of, of gifts, services, and activities, these different functions. Um, there are many different ways that they manifest in the body, that they display themselves in the body, but they all come from God. He is the source of all of them. And they're given explicitly for one purpose, and that purpose is the common good the common good of the body, which is essential to understand. So Jesus Christ has given all of us, all of you, with specific manifestations of the Holy Spirit, according to this text, for the common good of the body. And what makes it a manifestation of the Holy Spirit isn't that it looks like a supernatural power or ability that you, you have that other people don't possess, or maybe not a lot of people possess, what makes them a manifestation of the Spirit is that they are used to serve the body. They are used to love the body. Whatever kind of gift it might be, it serves the body. So no talent, no skill, no ability has been given to anyone here, myself included, that um, is simply intended by God to be used for hobby, recreation, occupation, they are for the body of Christ. That's why we have any gifts that we have. And although Paul mentions many things after this passage, like utterances of wisdom and knowledge, prophecy, distinguishing between spirits, speaking in tongues, interpreting in tongues, his main point in this text isn't the kinds of gifts that, that are manifested. His main point, and I, th I think we kind of get caught up in this conversation, in this dialogue about should we pursue certain gifts? Should we not pursue certain gifts? Um, have some ceased or do some continue? And I think, if I'm being honest with you, that actually ignores his main point in this passage. 
His main point in this passage isn't the kinds of gifts. His main point in this passage is that they're being used. Paul says they're gifts, which means they are things that God has given you. They are things that he's gifted you. And we can't earn them. We can't manufacture them into being. They're given to us. So the question, the main question is, how do I use these gifts to love and care for the body? The question should be, how do we use what God has already given me, everything that he's given me already, to love and care for the body? How do I employ the gifts that I have in me for the common good? And this is exactly what Paul labors. If you continue down to verse 12, 1 Corinthians 12, verse 12, for just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free. And all were made to drink of one spirit, for the body does not consist of one member, but many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would, make it, that would not make it any less part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of be, hearing be? And if the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. So this passage shines a very bright light directly on why this anatomical nature, like language that he's using, this body language is so critical to understand what it means for the church to be the body of Christ. We are one body with many members, just like a human body has many different parts, and everyone with the gifts that they have from God, is called to use those gifts to love the body. This is God's design, his purpose for the church. Think about this. God, he could have done it any way he wanted to. He could have done it any way he wanted to. Nothing was stopping him. But in his wisdom, desired to build the body with individual members that functioned differently. God is not interested in everyone being the same. He is not. He loves to have diversity, complement diversity, which is why everyone isn't one member. We're not all arms. We're not all eyes. We're not all ears. We are all different and distinctive in very critical ways, important ways. Whether Jew or Greek or slave or free or, or whether we are gifted at music or whether we are gifted at serving, whether we are gifted in administration or leading, or teaching, or any of these things. Whatever it is, it is essential to the body of Christ. And this is profound. It means that nobody, nobody in the body is purposeless or useless. Everyone has a purpose. That's why he says that God has arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose he knew who was going to be here. He knew this church, and he arranged the members as he chose to do that. And so there are no sidelines in the church. I don't know if that makes sense to you. There are no benches. There are no folks who just say, you know, I just came here to hang out and hear a message, and 
go home and do my own thing. That's not actually the church. The body of Christ as the church are people, individuals, all of you who have been powerfully gifted to serve and love and care for one another in really deep ways. And this brings us back to Ephesians 4. So if we go back to Ephesians 4, drop down to verse 11, we're going to continue and see how this plays out. How does it play out that these many members function to love and care for the body? Verse 11 says, And he, he's talking about Jesus, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. And so right here at the beginning, he lists some of these gifts that Christ has given the church. He mentions apostles, people who were sent by Jesus, prophets, people who heard God speak and needed to relay that message, Um, evangelists, people who go out and spread the gospel, especially in areas where there hasn't been gospel spread, Um, and shepherds and teachers, which is literally in the Greek, a lot of people believe that it's shepherd teachers, which means the local church pastor, the pastor, shepherd of a local church. And the point about listing these specific ones isn't that they're special. That's not the point that Paul's making. The point is that they are all designed to equip all the other members to use their gifts. That's his reason for mentioning these. These gifts are unique in that they enable and equip and encourage and exhort the saints, the individual members of the body, to do what he refers to here as the work of ministry, the the building up of the body of Christ. And this is a huge deal because what this tells us in him saying that the job of a teacher is to equip the saints to do the work of ministry is that church is not an event where a pastor or preacher or whatever gets up on stage, preaches a sermon because that's his ministry, and then everybody goes home and does their own thing. That's not church. That is not church at all, even if I just described most of American Christianity. And I say that saddened to the core to our country's shame, but that's not church. The work of ministry is everyone's job. It's everyone's work. To do ministry full-time, this is important, is the job. To do ministry full-time is the job of every single Christian on the planet, It isn't the role of a specific person. It is what Christians do. They do the work of ministry. And my role, in addition to doing the work of ministry, alongside everyone else who is a follower of Christ, is to equip everyone in this body to use the gifts that God has personally given to you, the skills, the talents, the abilities that he's specifically given to you, to do the same work of ministry, which he describes here as the building up of the body of Christ. Now, what in the world is that? What does that mean, to build up the body of Christ? Is he talking about numeric growth? we got to try to get more people in seats. Is that what he's talking about, or is this something else? Let's read what Paul thinks church growth looks like. It says, And he, that's Christ again, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, 
until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. So there's lots here, and this is extremely important. So I'm going to move carefully and slowly through this. The building up of the body of Christ, Paul mentions, is a move of the church towards something that is massive, something that's huge, something that's bigger than anything we can conceive of. He refers to it as... We should do this until we attain to the unity of the faith and to the unity of the knowledge of the Son of God, what he refers to as mature manhood. What he means is a full-grown adult, not a child, a full-grown man, adult. What he describes here is the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So what does he mean by this? What is he talking about? to attain the unity of the faith, to, to, to attain unity of the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Why is he using this language? This is why. The focus of the body is that all of us, all of us together would press on to believe, trust, and know Christ in such a way that it transforms the entire body into the full measure and stature of Jesus. We look like Christ. That's his goal here. That's huge. That is massive. This unity of our knowledge of who Jesus is causes us to look like Jesus in the world. And the pathway to this knowledge, the pathway to this transformation into Christ is what he refers to as the work of ministry. The work of ministry. That's what leads us to the unity of the faith. And when he says unity of the faith here, just for clarification, he's not simply talking about being on the same page theologically, which is massive. We, like, we need to do that. We, we can't not be on the same page theologically. But this goes way beyond that. This is a relational reality. And this work of ministry happens together or it doesn't happen at all. That's what I'm reading here in the text. Um, It's the kind of pursuit of knowing Christ that must occur side by side. It must occur together. It must occur working alongside each other because we are one body, all of us together. And when we, the body, know him like this, Paul says in verse 14, then we will no longer be children tossed to and fro by waves. We won't be carried about by every wind of doctrine. We won't won't be led away by false teachings, false doctrines, or human cunning, or craftiness of deceitful schemes. We will be impervious to those things. They won't have an effect on us. Paul, in, in, in encouraging us to pursue this together, is wanting us to be like an unyielding rock in the middle of a storm. Waves come, winds come, 
and we do not move. We don't move. And the reason we don't move is because we know Christ. We know him. We know him. And we're not compelled by clever ideas or new teachings or strange things that people are talking about or things that sound right to the ear. We're not, we're not, we're not impressed by those things because what's convincing to us is Jesus. What's compelling to us is Christ, and we are gripped by him. And to be clarified, this isn't becoming like Jesus by attaining some sort of moral perfection prior to the resurrection. This is telling us we should not look like everybody else in the world. We should, as a body, look like Christ. Paul's passion for the church at Ephesus, Paul's passion for us, is that the local body would know Christ in such a way that he would be everything to us in such a way that not just one of us, two of us, or three of us, but everyone in the church would look like Christ, that we would have this unity of the faith, that we would have the knowledge of the Son of God. That's what Paul's after. And in knowing him, we would begin to sound and look and act a lot like Jesus. That's what he desires for us, that we would grow, verse 13 says, into the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. He's just adding word over word over word to show the greatness of Christ and how he is drawing us into this awesome thing to be like Jesus in this world. And it says here, we have to do it together. It's not a solo activity. It is the body that attains this unity of the faith. And he makes that even more clear as he, as he revisits some of these terms and describes the same event in a different way in verses 15 through 16. He says in these verses, rather, rather than be tossed about by the waves and winds of false doctrine, we should be speaking the truth in love we are to go, grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So Paul, again, is showing us the pathway to being like Christ isn't a solo project. It's not a solo project. It is not a solo job. It isn't something we just do individually. We actually need each other to do this. That's why the church exists. And here, the body language he has is just intensified to ensure he wants us to get this. The, the, the fact that the body is used as an analogy for a group of people is not an accident. He wants us to get the language here. So he begins by saying, we need to speak the truth in love. What truth is he talking about here? We're looking at just the immediate context of Ephesians 4. There's only one truth that we've seen in this text, and that is the knowledge of the Son of God, who Jesus really is in the Scriptures. And this book, from front to back, is about Jesus. Everything's about Jesus. Everything's pointing towards him. Everything implies him or explicitly talks about him. It is about Jesus. And so that is the truth that Paul has in mind when he's talking about communicating the truth in love. It is who Christ is, the reality of Jesus Christ. And now he's going to tell us, how do we go about speaking that truth? How do we communicate individuals who are gifted by God, how do they communicate the glory of Jesus Christ to one another and how do they do that in love? 
Like, how does that happen? Well, he tells us in verse 16, it says that it begins with Jesus himself. From whom? From whom? Into Christ, from whom? And this is important for us not to pass over because it means that if there's any growth that happens in the church, it happens because of one reason, Jesus. All growth flows from Christ and from what he accomplished on that cross. Jesus, the head, is the source of all growth. And the way this Christ-enabled, Christ-fountainhead of growth occurs or looks like in the body is what he says next. The whole body being joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. Equipped, same word Paul used when he talked about what teachers are supposed to do with the saints to get them ready for the work of ministry when it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body growth so that it builds itself up in love. And that small sentence, he just described the church. This is what the church looks like. This is the church. And think about what he's saying. The whole body, this is all of us. So think about all of us in this room right now. The whole body, we are joined together and held together by every joint. That's what he, the language he uses here. And the joints are the individual, unique gifts that he has given us. God has given us through Jesus Christ. Each part, when it's working properly, only when it's working properly, is employed in loving other parts of the body or the body as a whole. According to this passage, if we have any gifts, the main reason we have those gifts, the main reason you're able to do things well, whatever it might be that you're able to do well, isn't for work, it isn't for play, it isn't for any of those things primarily, even though those things are good and right. It is for this purpose that those gifts would show something of Jesus to the body that those gifts would reflect some glory, some beauty of Jesus Christ to the body. And it is used to build up the body by God's grace. This is a profound fact. This is a wild idea. Um, because what it means is that every single Christian in the world is called to do the work of ministry for the body, that God's given them specific tools, specific assets to make Ephesians 4 a reality in our lives. Ephesians 4 doesn't happen if this doesn't go on. This is why the church exists. This is why the church is called the body of Christ it is to grow up in every way into the head and become Christ for this world. To show him, to show him in a world, I mean, the people out there don't know who he is. They don't know what he looks like. They don't know what Jesus sounds like. And this is designed to show them what they so desperately need. They need to see Jesus with flesh and blood. They need to see that worked out in the, the, the lives of people who have received him as their treasure. So how does this kind of work, the work of ministry, happen? What is, what is, what is, this, what is the, the basic function? Like, what does it look like on a day-to-day -day basis? Well, we began by looking at the foundation for the body is love. Love in pursuit of unity. And then we, we shifted over and we looked at another reality, which is God's given us individual gifts. And we see these two realities, love and distinct gifts that he's given us, plied together in an effort to show Christ 
to every single person of the body to show Jesus to them. This is the church, that, that loving through our own gifts, through our own abilities, in doing that, we are doing the work of ministry. And we are building up the body to look like Jesus. Um, to look like Jesus by, by showing him so that we would know him, we would know the Son of God in such a way that we look like him, a kind of knowing that transforms a person's soul so that they look like what they know. The church is, is not an event. It is every day. Every day is a church day. The church isn't a building, but the church is building, the act of building, the verb using the gifts that God's given you to show Christ. That's what the body is. And I'm going to be honest with you, until, until, like, until the church, broadly, and, and even our church, until we think in terms like these, Ephesians 4 will be a closed book to us, not to be opened. Like This is, this is what it looks like for the church to live its life. And, and so I, as, as just the pastor of this church in particular, want to really humbly ask Risen Hope, to consider what does it mean for you to participate, you individually to participate in the work of ministry. What has God given you to love his people? What has God blessed you with, imparted you with to love his people? And I'm not just talking about serving in kids or serving on the worship team or serving in set up and tear down, um, even though those are massively important. And if I'm just being real with you, like we still have needs in those areas. We still have, we still have desires to, to have more people come on board, more people to be invited into that. So don't hesitate to, 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 to listen to that response. But it's more than serving on Sunday. It is more than serving on Sunday. As critical as Sunday is, the goal of the church, the goal of the body of the Christ is to look like the head, to look like Jesus are we really giving our lives to this end? Is, like this, is this what we think about when we wake up in the morning? How am I going to show Jesus to the people who know him and the people who don't? How am I going to show the body of Christ to the world? And I, I think for a lot of us, um, I mean, for me in particular, I'll just put myself in this situation, I know that church isn't a building. I know that church isn't an event. I mean, people have been preaching that for years now, probably not very long, to be perfectly honest, but people have been preaching that for a long time. The question isn't that you know it intellectually. The question is, do you live like that's the reality, that church is a people? Like over the last week, Jeremy, over the last week, have I used my gifts to draw out of each other in love a deeper knowledge of Christ, to, to press in the people around me who know Jesus already to strive to know him more and more and to enjoy him more and more every day. And the gospel, like, do I, do I, do I push people in, in a gracious, loving way to join me, unite arms, in pursuing Christ in the glory of the gospel? That's what it means to be part of the body. And this is what Jesus died for. He purchased a people blood-bought people with his own blood who would become one flesh, his bride, which is where I want to go to next. In a few moments, we're going to be worshiping through 
the memorial of the Lord's Supper, how we celebrate this is called communion. And so if your faith is in Christ, you are invited to participate in this. This is part of what it means to be in the body of Christ is to remember each week what it costs for us to be in the body. And as we prepare for this, I want to read a portion of a prayer that Jesus prayed to his Father in front of his disciples, which was the church at that time. Moments after the first supper and moments before he would give his life. And while I read this, what I want to draw your mind to and your heart to in this prayer is that Jesus' prayer to his Father needed an answer. And Jesus would pay for that answer to be yes with his own life. It wasn't free. Nothing we have in the church in the body of Christ is, is free because when Christ met us, we were not fit to be in his body in any way, shape, or form. We weren't. I was a sinner. I was a rebel against God. I was not fit to be in this body. But Jesus did not leave me that way. And he didn't leave you that way either. When he came to us, Jesus in this prayer is, going to, is, going, is about to pay for the answer that he needs from his Father that sinners and rebels can be part of this body, even at the cost of his own life. This is the prayer that Jesus prays. The glory that you, Father, have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and you love them even as you loved me. Jesus is praying for Ephesians 4 to happen. That's what he's praying for right here. The glory that Christ was given by his Father he has given to us. And the reason for that is that we would be one, that we would be a body. And that the body of Christ that he's talking about here, he wants to be not just one, perfectly one is the language he uses here, completely one. Christ in us and God in Christ, which is another way I think of saying the measure of, of the stature of the fullness of Christ from Ephesians 4. And in this, Jesus says, this is how the world will know. You want to know how the world will know who I am and God's love? This is how the world will know. God will use the body to show the world who Christ is and to show Christ's love for the world through the body. This, I mean... This is really absurd. Like this text, it, it's hard for me to believe that this is true, that this is Christ's goal for us and that he bought this on the cross because it is so outlandish that he's given us this glory, that God loves us like he loves Jesus. Jesus deserves to be loved by God in every way. I don't. I don't deserve that which is why the cross had to happen. The cross needed to happen. It was the only way that this body could come together. 
God so desires the body of Christ, his bride, to resemble his son that he gave up the greatest treasure in the universe, Jesus, on that cross in order to purchase this for all of us to be part of it. Like we, we, we enter in because of this work that Christ accomplished. The call on the Christian is to press into the reality of Jesus, to press into who he is together like there is no tomorrow, like this is what we live for, this is the air that we breathe, um, and that he would be everything to us, that Jesus would be everything to us so that we would show to the people who are in the body and the people who see it because they see us loving each other and loving them, how great his love really is. And we do this, this is how we do this. We do this by laying down our lives for each other in love and using our individual gifts, everything that God's given you, everything that God's skilled you with, given you talents for, using our individual gifts to build up the body to look like Jesus. Is that not a glorious task? We are here to make everybody else around us look like Christ. And in the process, they make us look like Jesus. And praise be to God, we can only do this because Jesus guaranteed it would happen. There's a lot of hope in that by dying to purchase it. And so when it happens, when this kind of church exists, then the world will know that God really did send his son. And the world will know how ridiculously absurd God's love really is. How amazing it is to be loved by God. How awesome it is. Let's pray for this to happen. What a gift we have, Father God, in just having your words Oh, may we never take for granted that, that you have inspired authors throughout history to communicate your reality, your truth, your purpose and mission for us so that we would receive it with gladness and live it out in our lives. What a wild, outlandish thing that the God of the universe who hung stars and galaxies in place would come all the way down here to speak into us. Um, Father, I ask right now, I plead with you really that you would light a fire in each heart that's in this room and in any heart that can hear this, this message, Father God, that, that we've been given gifts by God in order to, to draw our brothers and sisters in Christ closer to Jesus that we would know Christ in such a way that that knowing would, would look like Christ in this world. That you've designed it this way is no accident, that this is the way that you've desired to build up the body and, and show your love in the world is not, is not a mistake, it's not a coincidence. This is how you've always wanted it to be. And I pray that you would... Make this a reality in our hearts, Father God, that you would, you'd draw out of us whatever needs, whatever, whatever stopping us, impeding us from doing this, 
and put on our hearts a passion for this to happen at Risen Hope and for every church to be like this, Father God, every church to be like this and all of those local churches to form one body that they may be perfectly one because that's what Jesus bought on the cross. That's what he purchased. Help us to do this, Father God. In the name of Jesus, amen.